This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. In mainstream media, drug trip stories tend to fall into one of two categories. Comedic set pieces or cautionary after-school specials. And while both of these versions you certainly have their place, they sideline both the vulnerability and rawness of spending a few hours or more in a heightened state of mind. In this week's story, teller Doug Whippo shares one particularly eventful trip that carries with it the memories of family since past. Recorded live at Webster's Wine Bar in May 2009, Second Story is proud to present Acid. So one night, me and my older brother Mitch are sitting in his rusted out Chevy, and he looks over me with that look of his that can see right through you, and he says to me, he says, here you go, put this on your tongue. And he's got a hit of blotter acid on his fingertip. He can see the bright jump of fear in my eyes because he says, go ahead, what's the big deal? If it doesn't kill you, it just might make you free. Either way, you come out a winner. He gave himself an approving smile in the rearview mirror as the passing headlights of a car washed over his face. I don't know what to say to him. His gifts of persuasion, though strange, had a mighty power over my heart back then, and I was never much good at resisting his whims. Plus, I was only 18, and he was 28, a wise old man. This was a week before Easter, and snow fell from the sky and left a fine white blanket on the tops of cars and coated the sidewalks in his crunchy, sugary powder And Mitch leans over and nudges me with his elbow. Come on, don't be such a puss. He looks sadly out the window. Think mom would have liked to see you behave so disrespectfully? This bit always works on me. She died a few months before, and now it's clear that Mitch wants to do something fucked up to honor her passing. No leaving flowers on graves or gathering friends and relatives. For Mitch, it has to be something drug-related. He loves drugs. He loves acid. He loves pot, he loves alcohol, speed, you name it. All the good stuff, as he put it. So tonight, we're a couple of orphans doing blotter acid. Great, I think, as I gulp the hit down. Before long, I'll think I can eat glass or walk through walls. I'd never done this kind of stuff before, but then there were a lot of things I wouldn't have done if it weren't for Mitch. Don't worry, little brother, slyly winking. In an hour, we'll be flying high. And I say, what now? And he says, pulling me into the blue note over in Wicker Park, what else? Schnapps and old style. We walk in, and though I look every inch of 18 years old, the guy at the door weighs me on. So we're in a booth in the back, and the lights are low, and it's smoky, and jazz spills out the speakers, and Mitch sits there like a Buddha, so goddamn calm and serene. The world's on a string. And I'm so nervous I could claw my cheeks raw when this cocktail waitress stomps over to our booth and she's pissed. She's glaring back at the bartender, and he's one of those beefy bouncer types with the goatee, the shaved head, the tattoos, and that ironic smile like he's the absolute shit. The girl's skin is bristling and pale, and she says, whispering, Son of a bitch, cocksucking asshole. And then she remembers where she is and blushes, and she's all apologetic, muttering, Sorry, guys, cocktail? She's wearing a yellow shirt with a picture of E.T. on it. Phone home, it says in bold black letters. So I ask her, what's the matter? And 
She flings a scowl at the bartender who is flexing a bicep as he pours a pint. Asshole boyfriend is bartending tonight. This is just the kind of opportunity that Mitch lives for. His chest gets all puffy and he gives her a big warm rubbery smile and he says to her, he says, what you need sister is a night on the town. Why don't you just chuck this place in and tell the guy to fuck off and come out with us? And he reaches into his coat for that last hit of acid and waves it at her, much the way a hypnotist uses a watch to cast a spell. We're taking a little trip tonight and I've got a hit left. Take one of these and your troubles won't seem so bad. In fact, when you come back to Earth, you probably won't even remember the guy's name. Mitch got away with that kind of shit for years. He was the only person I ever knew who could be obnoxious and charming at the same time and not get the shit kicked out of him. And this girl looked at him, biting her lip, and she says to him, she says, Ever heard of Rent, big guy? It's due in a week. I got 40 bucks in the bank. My father's birthday is next week, and I can't afford to buy him anything. I got a sick dog at home that needs a vet. I can't just chuck it in. And her voice is harsh and raspy, and when she stops, a tear forms in her eye and runs down the bright redness of her cheek. The fucker is cheating on me. I just found out. And her face looked like it was cracking in about ten different places. So Mitch sucks in air over his teeth. That bastard, he says. Which strikes me as funny because I know for a fact that Mitch has done the same thing to at least a dozen women. So I lean over and touch her arm and tell her my name. And I introduce her to Mitch who takes her hand and kisses it. She smiles, and for me, it may as well be the first and last smile I ever see. And she says, she says with that smile of hers, Marla, my name's Marla. And then she takes, her drink or she takes our drink orders and tells us the first round is on her no matter what her asshole bartender slash boyfriend says. And she comes back, throws our drinks down, and wades back into the bar, which is now beginning to fill up with benign, loungy, Wicker Park hipster types. And then my heart starts to race from the acid, and Mitch leans into me, smiling, but it was one of his sad, serious smiles, and he says, with the old style and peach snops riding his breath, you know what mom told me before she died? I know what her last words were. And I remember when she died, how she reached over to say something to Mitch, there on her bed in that cold white room at Cook County Hospital, with the echoes of all the sick people floating in the hallway, and Mitch had sat down beside her and put his ear to her mouth and listened to her. And he had stood up and his face was empty. And then she had looked at me and tried to say something and couldn't and died right there. Mitch had never told me what she'd said. Why now, I wondered. But then the acid really started to flutter up and everything changed at once. The red lights shifted and shimmered. The floor moved, coasting over massive ocean waves. An electric surge snaked through my stomach, and Mitch says to me, he says, We got different fathers. We're half-brothers. The guy we thought was our dad was my father, not yours. Your dad is still alive somewhere out there. The man who I thought was my father left years ago, disappeared, died somewhere, and we never thought about missing him. And Mitch shakes me, his eyes shining like rubies. Your father is still alive. I look at him to see if he's bullshitting me, and his beard squirms with worms wiggling every which way. And then he yanks me out of the booth shouting, come on, let's get out of here. And he pulls me through a crowd of people whose mouths snapped like the jaws of strange insects. A cool, pepperminty rush of winter air hits my face as we leave. 
My fingernails tingle. Everything I touch is alive with spirits. Even the door handle of the car feels skin-like. I giggle, my voice strange, not my own. Mitch starts up the car. He says he wants to drive out to O'Hare Airport. The lights in the terminals are really groovy. You'll dig it. I try to gather some thoughts together about what he told me about my father, but then Marla bursts from the door of the bar, looks up and down the street, spots our car, and runs full out for us, waving her arms. She's pounding on the roof of the car, and I roll down the window, and everything good about her rushes into the car with the cold winter air. Let me in, she shouts. I want to come with. I quit. I told him to fuck off. And I open the door, and she falls shivering into the back seat, and through the cold on my face, I can feel my cheeks burn. She smells like earth. Mitch shoots me a triumphant glance and tosses her the little baggie with the acid in it and shouts, Hurry it up, sister. You got some catching up to do. And then he dives, dives the car right into traffic and races to O'Hare. At the airport, we stumble through the terminals, weaving our way through crowds of travelers. The floor is white, like snow. The overhead lights, too. I breathe the pristine air, and every few minutes a strange incandescent voice falls from the ceiling announcing arrivals and departures, and worn-out women with tired children and solitary frowning businessmen scurry to and fro, their faces so serious, so fraught, so unhappy, I think, and I want to tell them what I now know. It will be okay. <laughs> they will find love. It's right here in front of them. Love is everywhere. And I thought of the father I didn't know I had. He could be anywhere. I could have walked right past him in the airport. Love is everywhere! I say it out loud. But the words are funny and flat, and I start to laugh until I almost fall over and people stop and stare. So I run up ahead to where Mitch and Marla walk together, and Mitch is talking away, throwing his rap at her. And he looks like a prophet with his bushy beard and his long flowing hair. And Marla keeps pace with him, looking into his face with her lovely brown eyes, she's pulled into his orbit without question, and I'd seen that dozens of times. But this is different. I felt connected to her. We'd both found out something that night we didn't really want to know. The intensity of the airport chases us back to, car, to the car, and Mitch wants to drive to the lake and watch the sunrise. It's near dawn. Mitch drives slowly. The radio is blaring, and I turn around to look at Marla lying in the back seat. She's curled up like a baby. Her hands shield her eyes, and the shadows of streetlights splash across her body. Her face changes from horror to hilarity every few seconds. I take her hand and feel so small, like the wing of a bird. I thought he loved me, she says. I touch her face. It's cool, smooth, like marble. My heart aches and pounds. She squeezes my hand, touch, strokes my knuckles. Your skin feels nice, she says. Her pupils are as big as saucers. So you're the little brother, huh? Not so much the little brother anymore, I tell her. And the car glides past old warehouses and run down three flats. The whole world is packed into our little warm car, and the horizon is rimmed with orange light and frost coats the windows of cars and sidewalks. We're almost at the lake. Mitch is lost in the music, humming to himself and tapping the steering wheel. He's forgotten all about us. You boys, Marla says, you're all the same. And my heart clutches, and I want to shake her, 
and whisper in her ear that no, 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 that's not true, it isn't true. But Mitch breaks the moment. The car lurches to a stop and he flings the door open and cold morning air floods over us and he shouts, just in time, sun's almost here. We're at Montrose Harbor. I step out and stretch, my body stiff. The acid is mellowed, the edge is drained off. My eyes feel sharp like needles. And we stand side by side by side, facing the lake. And the sun comes up huge, glowing, burning orange fire. And it's a grand, beautiful thing. Marla's cheeks turn rosy. And Mitch, breathing deep, stretches his arms out wide like he's reaching out for the sun. And he says to us, he says, makes you really want to love the world, doesn't it? And Marla nods slowly. Maybe, she says. Maybe not. And somehow, I knew exactly what she meant. Come to your house, monkey in the gold. You will make a big and punch like Canto Normally, this is where I would credit the artists who helped put this story together. Unfortunately, this story was produced over a decade ago, and despite our best efforts, we were not able to locate that information. Thank you for your understanding. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walder Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.